Welcome to this message from Alpha and Omega Christian Fellowship. We are a family on a journey to become more like Christ, sharing His kingdom by expressing His love. We hope that you will be blessed and encouraged by what we have to share. The title of my message today is No Ifs, Ands, or Buts. That's an expression you might, uh, you might be familiar with. Uh, sometimes commands are given, and there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. I remember as a child, my parents sometimes used to say that to me. No ifs, ands, or buts, just this is what needs to be done. And that's the title of my message this morning, and really what the whole message is revolving around is the first and the great commandment. Who can tell me what that is? Carry on. No, 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 that's the second one. Very good. Very good. Love the Lord with how much of your heart? Now, when God established this law the first time, we see it when God, with the nation of Israel, He made a covenant with Abraham. And here's the covenant. I will be your God, and you and your your family and your descendants will be my people. And that's a theme that runs throughout. It's one of my favorite themes. It's It's a possessive thing. You are mine. I belong to you, and you belong to me, like a married couple. Exodus 20, Moses goes up onto the mountain. God gives him the tablets, the Ten Commandments, the first of which is, you shall have no other gods before me. Verse 4 says, you shall not make yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. In other words, it is just me. I am your God, you will have no others. You will not make any images. Why? Because that's what all the nations of the earth were doing. That was their great idea, and their, their big idea is to make for themselves gods. And if you read the narrative, we're going to be following through quite a large section of narrative this morning, because I'm wanting, there's things that the Lord's been highlighting in my heart that I want to share with you today, that we can draw from and learn from. But there seems to be a pull throughout the Old Testament towards the worship of other gods. Have you seen that? Have you noticed that? how much there's this pull. There's this, within the heart of man, our desire to draw aside to other gods and to go after other things which God has forbidden. It's like the enemy knows that if he can get God's people to compromise on this one commandment, that all the others become meaningless. You see, if God is not my God and my only God, then the rest of his commandments are a matter of opinion. They're an option among many options. But if that first commandment is truly in place in my heart and in my life, everything else finds its perspective in that one thing. We'll get to it again in the end, but this is how Jesus articulated that great commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. That's Matthew's version. Luke goes on to say, and all your strength. In other words, it's an all-encompassing thing. Not part of it, but all of it. That's a really strong theme through what we're going to be sharing this morning. And so from the wilderness to where that command was given, as we work it through, through the conquering of the promised land with Joshua, the first time we see the fullness of the promises associated with that command is coming to fruition through the reigns of King David and his son Solomon. God said, I will be your people. I will give you this land. If you make me your God, I will deliver them into your hand Here's my promise. 
occupy the land. I will be with you. I will go before you. And we see the culmination of that in the reign of David, where he, as a mighty man of valor, as a man of war, defeated all the enemies on all sides. And under the reign of his son Solomon, there was peace in all the land. And the Bible articulates it this way. I love this. This is beautiful Middle Eastern, um, not ideology, but, um, but, but, but turn of phrase. Every man had his, ate from his own vine and sat under his own fig tree. In other words, everybody had their place. They had a home. And having been to Cyprus, I know that everybody, if you've got a plot of land, you've got your own vine, your own fig tree, and your own lemon tree. And an olive tree. <laughs> it's just the thing. It's just that you don't plant a tree just for the sake of it, just for shade. No, 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 it's going to give you shade and olives, etc. And so we see under the reign of David and Solomon, there came a time of peace where there was no more war in Israel and everybody had their place. And the promises of God found natural manifestation. Amen? King David, as we know, was a man after God's own heart. Solomon was a man of wisdom who brought peace and prosperity to the people. And people traveled from all over the world to come and see the prosperity that God and had, had given to the nation of Israel and to Solomon, and they were in awe. But how many of you can say the word but? But something happened. You see, although Solomon started well, although he had the good example of his father, David, who was a man, the Bible said, who had a heart after God, something happened with Solomon. And we're going to pick up the narrative here in 1 Kings chapter 11 from verse 1. King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, the Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, the Hittites, from the nations from whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. So Solomon starts going against the command of the Lord here. And here is what the Lord said. Here is why he gave that command. Say, surely... Surely they will turn your hearts after their gods. Not maybe. Surely. So interesting these days, even in, in relationships with young people. Oh, but I love him, but I love her. But she's not serving the Lord. They're not following after the commands of God. No, but, but we'll turn them. We'll win them, right? God himself says, surely you're the one who's going to be turned. Not Maybe. We think that somehow, because we're born again, somehow we're going to be stronger than the influences we allow in. Here's the reality check. We're not. We are an easily influenced people. And generations and generations of history, both new and old covenant, prove this to us. So what happened? Solomon clung to these in love. His heart wrapped itself around his passions. He allowed himself to give into the lust of his flesh. And he, it's not, he, it says his heart clung to them. He was not willing to let go of this idolatry, this sin in his life. And he had 700 wives, this guy. <laughs> Sucker for punishment. 700 wives, 
princesses, 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. So just as the Lord said it would be, so it was. For it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart off to other gods. His heart was not loyal to the Lord his God. Say loyal. Loyal means faithful, always, continually. As was the heart of David his father. It goes on to say, Solomon ended up going after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not fully follow. Say fully follow. Fully follow. Not kind of follow. Not sort of follow. Not follow on a Sunday or maybe on a Monday morning, but fully follow. I know because of my experience and my testimony, there is a difference between following God and fully following God. Many of us follow God as a mental assertion, as, oh, I belong to the church, or I said a prayer once, that makes me something. I lived my life like that for many years as a young man, a double life. I knew exactly how to follow God on Sunday and on a Friday night at youth group. But I I also knew how to follow somebody else just about every other day of the week. Was I fully following the Lord? Thank God for a little Greek man who took me by the ear and taught me how to fully follow. Sometimes, literally. (laughs) And so here's what Solomon did. Because he did not fully follow the Lord and because his heart was given to these women and ultimately his heart was given to the compromise of allowing all of these things into the kingdom, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, on the hill that is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the people of Ammon. And he did likewise for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. And so here we see in the midst of this promised land that was promised to God, his special people, who were meant to be devoted wholly and entirely to him, were established high places, places of influence devoted to other deities, other gods, and other influences. Solomon welcomed into the kingdom that which his father spilled blood to purge from it. What a price was paid to bring Israel to the place where God wanted them to be. And oh, what a price was paid by those same people when Solomon invited these other things in. We see the consequences of these influences repeat themselves again and again and again in both the kingdoms of Judah and Israel. Because don't forget, after Solomon's reign, the kingdom split. It was Israel and the tribes of Israel, and in the south it was Judah with Benjamin. Many did evil in the sight of the Lord, the kings and the, that, that ruled these, over these periods. And they continued to worship Baal and the gods of the heathen nations. And this perpetuates itself generation after generation after generation. Now that these influences are welcomed in, they've gained a foothold, they've gained a stronghold, and the people's hearts remain divided in loyalty. Some of the people loyal to God, some of the people loyal to the gods of these other nations. And we see this eventually results, uh, what this eventually results in during the time of King Ahab and his wife Jezebel. And here's where I need you to understand. I'm telling you a story here, and I want you to catch the narrative, and we're going to pull certain lessons out of the narrative, but I want to carve the story for you because in the story, I think we learn and we see best what I think it is the Lord wanting to to, uh, communicate to us. 
King Ahab and Queen Jezebel were the prophet Elijah's greatest earthly enemies during his lifetime. They were wicked rulers who reigned over the land of Israel. One day, God told Elijah, his prophet, to go and tell the king Ahab that a famine would come to the land of Israel, and so it did. So Elijah was firstly hated because he was uh, one who represented God, and this man now comes and says, by the way, God Almighty says there's going to be a famine in the land, and so there was, and it just, it did not rain. Now, during the reign of King Ahab, the followers of God were persecuted, Jezebel was allowed to kill off God's prophets. That was her big thing. Go off true godly authority. Kill them off. And they had to go into hiding in order to survive. And due to the drought, there was a great famine in the land. And eventually through Elijah, God sets up the very first God's Got Talent show in order to deal with the prophets of Baal. And so what Elijah does is he says to the king, listen, call all your prophets. We're going to have a showdown up on Mount Carmel. And uh, let me read to you what it says here, 1 Kings 18, 17 to 21. It happens when Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab said to him, is that you, O troubler of Israel? See what he thought of him. And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have in that you've forsaken the commandments of the Lord and have followed the Baals. It's, it's amazing. He doesn't list any other commandments. It's not like, oh, you've, you've murdered, or oh, you've lied, or oh, you covered it. That one commandment in which everything else is encapsulated, you've worshipped the Baals, you've gone after other gods. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel, 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. That's really interesting for me. They eat at Jezebel's table. What does that mean? It means that the prophets of Baal and these other prophets were state-funded. So Ahab sent for all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. And Elijah came to all the people and he said, now listen to what he said. How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. And the people answered him, not a word. It's interesting here. He didn't say, how long will you falter between two gods, but two opinions? We're living in a world where there are many, many opinions, varying and differing, and we are taught to believe that all opinions matter and that all opinions are equal. They are not. And as God's people, we are those who, with boldness like Elijah, stand up and say, there is one whose word is true. There is one opinion that is truth and that matters, and that is the opinion of God. That is the word of God. And so here, Elijah issues a challenge. Here's the God's God Challenge contest. And he says, all right, we're going to build two altars, and we're going to take two bulls, and you're going to cut up your bull, and you're going to put it on your altar, and you're going to call out to your God, and whoever calls down fire, that is the true God. And so what happens is the prophets of Baal say, challenge accepted, and they put their bull on their altar, and they call out to God from morning till noon, and they're, noon, and they're crying aloud, and they're leaping at the altar. And at about noon, Elijah mocks them. He says, maybe, maybe he's meditating. 
Maybe Baal's gone on a trip. Maybe he's gone on a trip. And you can see him mocking them. He says, maybe he's sleeping. Cry, shout louder. You're going to have to wake him up. Cry louder. And so the people do. And there's more fuss. And there's more. And now they start slitting themselves. And they're cutting themselves. And Elijah's watching this until it's kind of dusk. And the sun's about to go down. And Elijah says, guys, all day, nothing. Nothing. 1 Kings 18, 29. There was no voice. No one answered no one paid attention <laughs> to these prophets. And then we know Elijah built his altar. He made it from 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. He put his bull on the altar, and the, on the wood, and then the, and then the bull. And then he said to them, bring water. Fill up your pots and bring them. And put it on the, on the wood. Make it wet. Make the whole sacrifice wet. Folks, this hasn't rained for, I think it was seven years. There is no water. It's the scarcest commodity. And he does this three times until everything is drenched. And then Elijah stands in front of this altar and uttered those famous words. No, Chanos Brai. And he said, God, if you hear me, called out, and he called down fire, and the fire came and it consumed the all it consumed the bull, it consumed the wood, it consumed everything. All the water gone. And God, in that moment and in that day, vindicated his name and his status as the true God. But the, the truth is, folks, that despite that, despite that incredible evidence, it did not stop the rot. These influences remained in, in, in the land of Israel and led to the, to, the, to the persecution and the captivity of God's people. As I said, the kingdom divided. In Israel, if you read the lineage of the kings of Israel, all of them did according to their father, and what they did was they made idols and they worshipped idols. However, things were much the same in Judah, but there were a few ups along the way. When you look through the lineage of the kings of Judah, they either walked in the ways of the former kings and sinned against the Lord, or some of them did what was right in the sight of the Lord. Great news, right? And in reading through the text, I find, as I've been going through the book, I've been working through it quite slowly, I find my heart engaging with the facts in, in, in a way that is surprising me. When I read the words that there's a new king, what happened now? This one did evil in the sight of the Lord, and my heart is grieved. It's like, no, why? How could it be? And there's like this inner turmoil. God, your people. And yet they continue to do evil and you continue to be patient and faithful towards them. And my heart is grieved in it. And then I read, and this king did what was right in the sight of the Lord. And there's something in me that's going, yes, here we go. Here come a dung. We're going to turn the tables here. Okay? But there's something that's really caused me to stop and take personal notice. Because God's been putting his finger on something in my own heart. And I believe that in sharing it with you, it will help you to navigate your way through what I believe the Lord desires to do in all our hearts in the season that we are in. And this theme begins with the reign of King Ahab. Now, God told Elijah after this whole thing had happened, he was going to kill um, King... Let me get these names right. I'm terrible with them. T kill, kill King Ahab, that's right. And, and, and all his descendants are taken out, right? Right? And so Elijah is told to anoint Jehu 
as king in Ahab's place. We see this in 1 Kings 19, 15 to 17. For the sake of time, I'm not going to read it. And so, the, after this whole God's Got Talent contest, Jezebel is killed. Jehu, who becomes king, kills the 70 sons of Ahab. He then goes after the rest of Ahab's family and those who were in close acquaintance with him. And on his way to Samaria to continue to take out all those who were loyal to Ahab, we find this portion of Scripture, 2 Kings chapter 10, verses 15 to 17, where he runs into a friend of his. Now, when he had departed from there, he met Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, coming to meet him. And he greeted him and said to him, Is your heart right as my heart is towards your heart? And Jehonadab answered, It is. And so Jehu said to him, If it is, give me your hand. And he gave him his hand and he took him up into the chariot. So now they're sitting together and they're going to travel together on the way to Samaria. And listen to the words that, that King Jehu says to him. He says, Come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. And I read this and I go, ooh, this is getting exciting. This man is passionate about the things of God. Amen? Come and see my zeal. And so they had him ride in his chariot. And when he came to Samaria, he killed all who remained to Ahab in Samaria, just as the Lord had commanded, till he had destroyed them according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke to Elijah. And this seems fantastic, right? It kind of reminds me of Peter, this guy. Lord, I will never forsake you. Zealous and passionate. He says, come and see what I'm going to do for God. But then, just a little bit later in the same chapter from verse 27, 2 Kings 10, 27 to 31, he says, Then they broke down the sacred pillar of Baal. They tore down the temple of Baal and made a refuse dump to this day. Uh, and thus Jehu destroyed Baal from Israel. And I'm going, yes. Eli Elijah started it. Here's this king following through on God's command. Baal is done with. And then we have another but. This time it's just called however, but it's the same thing. Jehu did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. That is, from the golden calves that were at Bethel and Dan. And the Lord said to Jehu, because you have done well in, the sight of the, uh, done well in doing what is right in my sight. In other words, you've done what I commanded you to do. Your reward is that your sons will sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. Verse 31, but Jehu took no heed to walk in the law of the Lord God of Israel with all his heart. Sarah, say it again, all his heart. He took no heed. For he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, who made Israel sin. And I think to myself, what a contradiction. So here I'm all excited, and then I read these words, and I'm going, come on! Man! You see, even though there was zeal, folks, and even though he followed God's instruction, yet he did not follow God with all his heart. And as a result, he too got drawn away into idolatry. Folks, this shows us that you and I can be zealous about an act of worship, about an act of obedience obedience, about following an instruction from God that either comes from a time of prayer, that comes through a pastor, that comes from a pulpit. And we can be zealous to take that word and to run with it and to perform that action and to do that one thing and yet still harbor altars in our hearts in such a way that we do not fully follow the Lord. So as I read through the narrative I want to celebrate the kings who did what was right in the sight of God. But even in those, 
I find a parallel popping up again and again and again. And I see this parable, how it's played itself out in my own life over the years. And I see this parable, this parallel, how it plays itself out in the life of God's people and within the church. 2 Kings 12, 2-3 says this, Another king rises up, King Joash, and Joash did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days in which Jehoiada the priest instructed him. Verse 3, but, say but, but the high places were not taken away, the people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. Now listen, Jehoash, we heard about him last week, our kids actually taught us about him. Galen will remember, I'm sure she will. He was the king who, who, who brought, who, the, 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 the temple was raided for all its gold, for all its jewelry and these things, and he was the one who put it on his heart, who wanted to rebeautify the temple. And he wanted to set up the worship of God again. So there was certainly a desire to do something for God, right? To do acts of worship. But yet, the high places were not destroyed. Another king, a little further down, Amaziah, 2 Kings 14, verses 3 and 4. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord, yet not like his father David. He did everything as his father Joash had done. However, the high places were not taken down, and the people still sacrificed and burned incense in the high places. So they, they did what was right in the sight of the Lord, but they did not take down the high places. There's a paradox here. There's a contradiction here. There's two parallel narratives that are running together, and there's, there's a message in this for us. Further down came Amaziah, 2 Kings 14, 3 and 4. He did what was right in the sight. Oh, that was, we just read. Azariah, 2 Kings 15, 3 and 4. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done, except that the high places were not removed. These influences that were allowed were allowed to remain. And even though he had set his heart on doing what was right in the sight of the Lord, he continued to allow compromise, other influences. Jotham, another king. Let's just carry on. 2 Kings 15, 34 and 35, the first part. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord. Hey. He did according to all that his father Uzziah had done. However, the high places were not removed. And we see this thing perpetuating itself. It's very interesting. When you read the original commandment in, 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 in uh, Exodus 20, where we started, he said, you will have no other gods before me. He says, if you worship other gods, I will visit that, that punishment upon you down to the third and fourth generation. In other words, that's not God saying we're going to punish your children's children's children because of what you have done. That's saying you are going to set in motion things that will be felt by four generations after you. You see, what you allow will affect those who come after you. And what you pursue with all your heart will affect those around you and those who come after you. Have you heard of the field of epigenetics? You've heard of genetics, right? We carry the genes. We are the product of our parents' genes. That's why we look like them. Epigenetics is, is, is sort of, it's, it's a very interesting field of study. I don't know all that much about it. But what it really has to do with is, is not so much the biology of, take, of carrying on the line of what your parents had, but what it is, is the propensity to go in the same way that your parents did. If your father and mother struggled in a certain area, the all likelihood you will struggle in the same area. Certain sin. Certain ways of thinking. 
epigenetic. I'm not going to go into that now. But this so speaks into what God is saying here. And here we just see generation after generation after generation thinking and believing that it was acceptable and okay and that, they were, that God was pleased with them because they were doing what was right in the sight of the Lord yet without removing the altars and the influences of the gods of the, the world around them. Two parallel truths existing together, the one undermining the other. And I hear the words of Elijah again. If he was there, he would have said, how long will you falter between two opinions? How long can you keep and carry two altars, two ways within your heart and within your life? You see, high places are altars. They're places of prayer, places of devotion. An altar is a place of personal sacrifice. Incense, and the incense that they used to burn, represents worship. It represents influence. It represents lordship. We worship that which holds influence in our lives. Or that which holds influence in our lives is that which, which derives, which, which we give our attention to. Let me give you some examples of what high places may look like in, in our day and age. Widely accepted opinions of this world and our culture that contradict the Word of God. You talk about identity politics these days. Boy, widely dividing opinions, completely contradicting the truth. In Romans 12, verse 2, Paul says to the people, do not be conformed, think like, look like, patterned after the people and the, nation and the customs of this world, but you, as God's people, be transformed through the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and the perfect will of God for you. Other altars that we may carry and we may worship at are the opinions that contradict or undermine God's word concerning your life. It's the buts. It's like Moses. His altar was his infirmity. Moses, I'm sending you to Pharaoh. No, but Lord, I can't speak. But God, I am not an eloquent man. That was his little altar of worship. He worshipped his infirmity over the will and the purpose of God. It could be conclusions that you and I have reached about God that are based on our experiences rather than the Word of God. God says, I am he who heals. I am he who delivers and has set you free. And yet you continue in sin and say, nah, I don't know. I don't know if I fully believe that because here's my experience and this is what happened to so-and-so. You know, I know a story about a woman who got healed. God miraculously healed her of a bodily affliction and yet she became resentful and angry at God because he didn't do the same thing for somebody else she cared about and she completely walked away from him. How does that make any sense? It could be another altar that we could worship at are the endeavors that we cling to or even the things that keep us distracted from God, from doing what we know to be right. Generally, our altars, folks, are revealed through the excuses that we make. What is an excuse? An excuse is nothing more than a lie that I tell myself to make me feel better about not doing what I know I ought to be doing. Your excuses will help you identify the altars in your life. I know I'm supposed to be spending time in the presence of God, but here it comes. 
Here's your excuse. Here's your altar. I need more sleep. Now, that's, that's where you're worshiping. You're worshiping the same altar. At the same, that, that's Baal. He's asleep too. Go join. <laughs> I know I'm supposed to forgive this person and restore the relationship, but no, no, no. Don't come with the excuses. Here's your, or I'll do it if they, no, no, no. Here's your no ifs, no ands, no buts. Maybe your altar is an unwillingness to stop engaging what you know does not please God. Maybe there's habitual sin in your life that you continue to tolerate. And you explain it off and you watch, you, it's okay and God understands. And I continue to tolerate this compromise. I'm still doing what is right in the sight of the Lord. But I, I mean, this, this altar doesn't matter, does it? It could be that TV series that you know God is not pleased with you watching. But yet you continue to binge. It could be that relationship. It could be that, that, that device. Boy, do we worship at those altars. Folks, here's the truth. We will either sacrifice our agendas and opinions for God's or we will sacrifice His agenda for our life because of our own opinions. How long will we tolerate divided opinions within our own lives? That's the word that Isaiah said, and that's what I believe the Lord is saying. The two cannot coexist. And so then we come in 2 Kings chapter 18 to a king named Hezekiah. And this is what it says about him. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. Yeah, I know, we've heard this before. According to all that his father David, David had done. Whoa, hang on, it gets good here. He removed the high places and he broke the sacred pillars and he cut down the wooden images and he broke in pieces even the bronze serpent that Moses had made because until those days the children of God burnt incense to it and they called it Nehushtan. So even the bronze serpent of Moses they were worshipping. And he trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that after him none so that after him was none like him among the kings of Judah, nor were there any before him. Hezekiah stood out from all the rest. Up to that time, there was not a king who went to these lengths, and we've seen that. After him, sad story is, there was not another king like him until Jesus came. For he held fast to the Lord, where Solomon clung and held fast to his passions and his women and his desires. This king held fast to the Lord, and he did not depart from following him. There was no compromise. There was no allowance for anything else. He had set his heart. He had set his trajectory, and he kept to it. It says he kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. And the Lord, therefore, was with him, and he prospered wherever he went. And he rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. Here's the point I want to make. While we may often feel good about our acts of worship to God, our zeal and our acts of obedience, it is our ifs, our ands, and our buts that undermine what God wants to do in and through our lives. And I want to say to you, especially in the season we are in, 
In the same way that God sent the prophets to the nation of Israel and to His people to call their hearts back to the Lord, this is a time and season where God is releasing prophetic utterance. There is a prophetic release, and God is calling His people back to complete devotion in Him. No ifs, no ands, no buts, no other altars, no other agendas. God wants to do something in our hearts And He wants us to come to the place where we'll say, right, I'll obey if... No. Where we don't say, I'll obey if God does it. God, if you do this for me, then I'll do that for you. No, no conditions. Where we don't say, I'll serve God, but I'm also going to serve and my business and my dream and my passion. Or where we say, I want to follow you. I want to do what you tell me to do, but... And I throw in my excuses. I think the Lord is capturing my heart, and I believe He's speaking to us as a family, saying, hey, if we truly want to see the fullness of God's presence in us and among us, if we want to see the blessing and the fullness of His promises come to fruition in our lives, we each have to come to the place where we are prepared to cut down and destroy all our ifs, our ands, and our buts. It's time to tear down the pillars of unbelief and the high places of this world's opinions, to replace the incense of compromise with true worship that clings to and is focused on God alone. I want to close by a couple of verses from the New Testament now. James 4, verses 4 to 6, here is the brother of Jesus writing to the church, and he's writing to believers here. Okay? These words are not aimed at unbelievers. These words are aimed at you and me. And he says in the message, I love the message translation, he says, you are cheating on God. The, the, the original translation is a bit, it, it's a bit more pointed. It says, adulterers and adulteresses. Eugene Peterson paraphrases it this way. You're cheating on God. If all you want is your own way, flirting with the world every chance you get, flirting with the world, compromise. It's okay to allow a bit of this and allow a bit of that, and that's not so bad. And You end up enemies with God. And that's the story we glean from the life of Solomon, who was the wisest man who ever lived before Jesus, and yet ended up the epitome of a fool who though he knew how to and what to do in, that is right in the sight of the Lord, he gave himself, he allowed his heart to cling to other things. Do you suppose God doesn't care? Maybe we think oh, God understands. The proverb has it that he is fiercely jealous lover. He is fiercely jealous over your soul and he will not share it with another. And what he gives in love is far better than anything else you'll find. It's common knowledge that God goes against the willful proud. In other words, those who are self-determined. But God gives grace to the willing humble. Matthew twenty-two thirty-five 35 to 38, we spoke about this earlier on 
And one of them, a lawyer, asked him, being Jesus, a question, testing him, saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And I believe, church, that as we make this our aim, and as we ask God to reveal to us the altars and the high places that we have either erected or allowed to be erected in our lives, God is able to really help us come to a place where we can identify them and tear them down so that our hearts are fully loyal to Him and to Him alone. So women, I'm not beating up on you here, but when I look at when I look at what happened, it's Solomon allowed these women to bring these influences in. There were people in his life that he allowed to bring in, and these women that he, that, he, that he lusted after and longed for that were forbidden, they brought in influences that messed him up. Maybe there's people in relationships in your life, and through those relationships, things have been brought in that you now are, that are now the status quo. They're accepted. They're up there. They're on the hill. Everybody knows that. You may not go and frequent them. You may not visit those, those places in your mind, but there's things soul, sown into your heart. There's things established and ways of thinking that you know don't line up with God, but they haven't actually been dealt with yet because you still experience the fruit of them in your life. Maybe it's unforgiveness. Maybe it's, uh, you know, there's, that memory, whenever it comes back, still brings shame. Or that person, whenever that comes up, still brings bitterness or anger or resentment. Maybe it's a passion that you know is sinful, but yet remains so alluring. You haven't moved beyond that into freedom. I believe that as we deal with these areas, we will begin to see a whole new dimension of the blessing and the power of God at work in and through our lives. I want to say to you, church, the beloved of God. This is a call from the Lord who is jealous for your heart. And he's saying to you today, it is Hezekiah time. It's time to tear things down. Things that you don't really, if you're honest with yourself, even want in your life. You tolerate them, but you don't really want them. That's right, tear it down. Break it apart. It's Elijah time. Maybe you need to stand before those things and say, God, come and burn. No chanos brai. It's time to make that bonfire. So I want to ask you to stand with me this morning. We hope that you've enjoyed this message. For additional resources and more information, come and visit us at alphaomega.org.za.